if Christianity is to survive apologetically in that world, it has to be married to the scientific worldview of our time. I'm not sure that we might that we're all necessarily on the same page mm. as the divines on what they understood by soul. You're listening to 1A, a ministry of First Presbyterian Church, episode 36. Today we conclude our fall segment of our third series called Confessional Life, where Derek and I discuss some of the basics of the Westminster Confession and what it means to live it out. I'm Josh Squires, the Minister of Counseling and Congregational Care here at First Pres. 1A is a podcast designed to take a brief but in-depth look at counseling issues from a pastoral perspective. If this is your first time giving us a listen, we want to welcome you. We appreciate you taking the time to check us out. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. For more information, you can visit our webpage, which is firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. To find out how to contact us or how to subscribe, listen to the end of the show. If you do find this ministry useful, then subscribe using the application of your choice, and every Monday, a new episode will be waiting for you. Also, while you're there, leave us some comments. As we increase the number of reviews and comments, it becomes easier for others to find our podcast. In this episode, Derek and I wrap up our discussion on creation. We talk about the indicators that we've gone off the Reformed path when it comes to creation, as well as what motivates those that hold to a theistic evolution. We also discuss how to pastorally respond to those who struggle to square faith and science. Lastly, we end with our orthodox or not statement. Before we get there, though, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. It's because of our listeners that we keep creating new content. If there's an issue you'd like us to discuss or any questions that you have, please don't hesitate to let us know. Now, let's get to our show. Sorry, you, you asked me one question and I've kept going. Uh, no, no, no. I, this is, this is ex- so, you were about sorry. to go exactly where I wanted you to go next, which was, okay, so, so if we can say that it's okay to be in some of these lanes and there's diversity here, how do we know when we've gone off the road? Well, usually you feel a few bumps. <laughs> you know, the terrain doesn't... <laughs> and when you crash into the guardrail, that lets you know. feel as smooth as, right. it, as it did before. Yeah. There are lines in the sand, I think. And, and, you know, one of those lines for me would be historical Adam and Eve. You know, I read, uh, I read my, my dear, my dear spiritual father, John Stott. Mm. Uh, I read him saying somewhere in Issues for, for Our Times or whatever that book was called that God chose a couple of Neolithic farmers. Um, and let's say they were, 50,000 of them or 100,000 of them wandering about and he chose two of them, a male and a female and constituted them Adam and Eve. And you say, what's the difference then between Adam and Eve and, and their brothers and, and mothers and fathers and, yeah. and uncles and aunts? And the answer, of course, would be that they have a soul. Yeah. Right? Whatever that means. Yeah. They, were, they were made soulish. Or, or perhaps a better answer would be that they that they were given the imago dei they they were they were reckoned in the image of god yeah. however you want to define what that imago dei consists in right and um and then you've got the 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 rather awkward thought that you've got 
a line of Adam and Eve, now now human beings, Homo mm-hmm. sapiens, mm-hmm. with the Imago Dei, and they're wandering about and having children, and Cain and Abel, and, and so on. And so you've got this line. But yeah. where are the others? Where are the 50,000, 100,000 others? Because yeah. there's no mention of them in Genesis. They're wandering about. I mean, right. did Abel sort of bump into his his grandmother right. one day? Yeah. Right? And say... You know, you're not in the image of God. Yeah. Whatever you are, you're a, an animal yeah. or something. Right. Right? They're rather curious. Because yeah. if, if God just adopts Adam and Eve as two Neolithic farmers, where are, where are these Neolithic farmers? You know, it's, and did, did their line continue? And are, are there progeny of these Neolithic farmers wandering around the earth today, but they're not... They don't have they don't have souls. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but they yeah. don't have souls, or they they don't have the imago dei. Yeah. Right. So the curious. Yeah. Um, and and yet that is um, that is the view of those who posit a kind of theistic evolution view mm. of the origin of Adam, because at some point mm. in the evolutionary chain, Adam and Eve emerges. Right. But Adam and Eve has siblings. Yeah. Right? They're biological siblings who are not human. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't know where these people went to. Yeah. Or where, or even if they still exist. Right. Right. That, that may be that may be rather crass on my part, but I I just haven't seen the answer to that issue. the instinct driving theistic evolution and others they're just trying to make too much room for science that it, is that apologetics the- i think I, th- I think it's it's wanting to make christianity believable out there in the world mm. and in the world of hard atheistic science yeah we're not talking about the world of newtonian science you know that, that lived hand in glove with Christianity. We're talking about 21st century science that is, that is militantly opposed to theism yeah. in any description. Um, the Richard Dawkins and, and, and his crowd. Um, and I think, I think for many of these folks, if Christianity is to survive apologetically in that world, it it has to be married to their to the scientific world view of our time. Hmm. So, for someone, what do you think? Well, no, I, I think I think you're right. I think that there are people for whom this was this was going to be my question. There are people for whom this is an intense struggle: is squaring um, general revelation with uh, special revelation. And trying to find a way to give enough birth that we can trust science, um, and that then makes Christianity uh, palatable or, or even appealing to people. Um, I would say that I think that there is a place where people can trust too much. Now, I'm I trust science as well. I live by medical science. If it wasn't for medical science, I would die in a matter of days. Right. So I am I am pro science, breath by breath. Um, however, uh, I think trust and mistrust exist at the same time. People often think of trust and mistrust as being one spectrum, a needle that either I trust something or I mistrust something. But if you get, say, a young couple and they get married, 
they have both trust, otherwise they wouldn't get married unless it's a shotgun wedding or something. Um, but they also have high mistrust because they haven't been through anything. They don't know that they're going to be for each other in the midst of crisis. And, and so we get this idea that we need to trust and trust only and mistrust none or little. Um, but when mistrust goes away completely for anything other than God, um, we're actually naive. And so I, I think we try to, or we have tried to, to, to get out, uh, or, um, excise our mistrust of science just as a, a presupposition. And now we're trying to bring Christianity into a worldview that trusts science without having any mistrust of science. And now we got to make that whole thing square. I, I think you can live in a place and say, you know, I don't, I don't understand how all this comes together. And to a degree, not trying to be naive, but to a degree, that's okay. Um, it doesn't bother me and it doesn't um, shake the foundations of my faith. I do wonder, though, as, again, somebody who has uh, decades of both uh, ministry experience and as a professor you see people for whom this is a really intense issue. How do you pastorally respond to them when the hurdle for them even approaching Christianity is, well, science tells me the earth is billions of years old? You know, pastorally, people who hold to views by conviction are are difficult to shift. And I'm not sure that I really want to shift them hmm. of their convictions. Right. Um, the the issue becomes more sensitive to me when they make accusations about your point of view, right? And if that point of view is still within within the general um, remit of of scripture. Um, you know, making an accusation, say, of, of at worst, heresy, mm. uh, you know, that's when it becomes pastorally um, sensitive. Mm. Um, it was probably one of, the, one of the hottest debates I had as a young minister mm. uh, with, with colleagues of mine in the presbytery, was over creation, mm. and uh, expressing... Perhaps a a more accommodating view of of creation, allowing for different viewpoints, allowing for day age, mm-hmm. uh, allowing for the possibility that the world was millions of years rather than than thousands of years old, right. and 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 the conversation getting very heated in a in a moment. I was mm-hmm. present at a presbytery meeting in Mississippi Valley. I remember when. Uh, the issue of creation oh. it was a special meeting, as I recall, and the issue was was creation. And uh, hearing a colleague of mine um, sit for probably an hour or more saying nothing, and then all of a sudden he gets up and 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 he's passionate mm. about a certain viewpoint. Mm. And um, in one sense, we ought to be passionate if we believe this is what the Bible teaches. We ought to be passionate about what the Bible teaches. Right. And and I, I don't, I don't criticize anyone for being passionate about the interpretation of a certain passage. Right. But if a if a passage is capable of more than one interpretation, and I'm not, you know, we we, we mustn't fall into the hermeneutical uh, trough 
here of the the text has no meaning and that yeah. every interpretation is equally valid. I don't right. believe that for one minute. Right. Um, so, some some texts only have one meaning, one possible meaning, but others, as we were hearing last night in a in a sermon, um, th- there were there were several possibilities. Yeah. You know, is verse two or. Or is it the, or is it part B of verse one of Psalm 121? Yeah. I to the hills will lift mine eyes from whence doth come mine aid. And, and I think every time I used to sing that, I used to think, yeah, my safety comes from the hills. Yeah. I look to the hills and it's, it's an upward look and I'm, and it's a sort of, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. my help is coming from the hills because they're leading to Zion. Yeah. But actually it could mean I to the hills will lift mine eyes. The hills are full of bandits and marauders. Where's my help going to come from? Right. Right. As a question rather than a statement. Yeah. Um, so, so there's an example that a text is capable of more than one meaning, but, yeah. but, um, it, it's the fear, I think, in, um, in some, and it's a good fear. I, right. I, I like the fear. I like the suspicion yeah. that accommodation means the loss of, orthodoxy and, right. and the loss of commitment to the Bible. And, and I get that. Yeah. I, I mean, I get that in the, in the feminist hermeneutical debates, yeah. uh, in, in trying to sort of make sense of what Paul does when he cites the fact that Adam, uh, Eve was attempted first, not Adam and yeah. so on. And, uh, in Timothy and, and he makes a point of that. Yeah. Um, we we need to hear what Paul is saying, and there is a basic principle at stake here. Yeah. And um, likewise, I think in creation, I I just think that in creation, there are more than one. There is more than one valid view view of what it's trying to say. Yes. So what would you tell, you've got a young seminarian just coming in. He's already passed his credentials. So he's not, it, it's not that he's coming up for credentials. He is now on the other side. He's going to be helping the presbytery decide if somebody else is credentialed. And he is super passionate about it being six 24-hour periods. What, what would you advise him about either allowing for room um, um, or where he might want to press or listen? Yeah. Um, I, I think that I think that he's perfectly entitled to hold his view and he's perfectly entitled to teach his view and preach his view. I, I think if he if he tries to railroad that view, and I'm using an emotive term now, yeah. but if you try to teach that view in a way that suggests you are on a matter of principle, non-accommodating to other people's views on this issue. I mean, you're in for a difficult time, for sure. Um, And uh, as a young person, and and this may sound rather patronizing, um, you know, there are wiser and 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 more experienced heads and hearts around you mm-hmm. that are saying to you, you need to be a little more accommodating here to other people's views, even if 
you yourself don't hold that view. I, I've never been enamored of the framework hypothesis, but right. some of my best friends are, and they're yeah. passionate about it. Yeah. And, and I'm fine with them being passionate about it. I don't mind them teaching it yeah. from the pulpit, so long as they don't diss my view. Yeah. Uh, that that actually I think that sequential order does have some bearing here. Why don't we go ahead and wrap up with our orthodox or not statement for this segment. And the, the statement that you'll hear people make, and I wanted to get your evaluation on, is animals have no souls. So you're saying that Luther and Gracie and Chloe. Your pets. My pets, two dogs. Not the reformer and no, no, others. No, no, these okay. are four-legged creatures. Do not have souls. And I have no idea what that means. Mm. Uh, because there is not a shred of biblical evidence for that statement. Uh, in Genesis 1, the word nefesh for soul, man became a living creature, a living soul. But the, yeah. but the same word is used for for fish, right, right, and birds of the air. Yeah, and I think it is the equivalent in Genesis one of of, of the statement, they were alive mm. rather than dead. What's what what is it? What is it that makes you alive? Yeah. Either what either you're a dog or a fish or a cat. But there there is. You're alive and you're dead, but it's more than just breathing. Yeah. Um, that you have life. Yeah. It, you know, is, is the imago day the thing that distinguishes man from the rest of creation? Is that his soul? Is that the nephesh? And, yeah. and there's no exegetical evidence for that in Genesis. Mm. So I think we're being driven here by Greek thought mm. more than biblical thought. Cause this is prevalent. This is not some sort of sure. side. Thought out there. So some of the things I must have been asked, you know, hundreds of times, are there animals in heaven? Yeah. And I don't understand where this question is coming from because what sort of heaven are you, are you contemplating? Right. And I don't think they're asking the question about the intermediate state. I think yeah. they're asking about the final state. Yeah. Are there animals in the final state? But what is the promise of scripture about the final state, but a new heavens and a new earth? Yeah. Yeah. All so, of creation groans. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's it's the process of redemption is restorative. Yeah. So it is a restoration of Eden. Hmm. Hmm. So when the confession says that man has a reasonable soul, is that unique to man? Is and is it the reasonableness that is unique to man as compared to just soul? Well, that's a good question to ask. What did the divines understand? And I'm right. not sure. I'm I'm not sure that we might that we're all necessarily on the same page as mm. the divines on what they understood by soul. Okay. I'm on the same page that man is a soul. Right. Right. I'm not sure I'm on the same page. If you want to, want me to say man has a soul. Mm. Mm. Um, the reasonableness I think in the 17th century was um, an indication that they understood that soulishness as having rational components to it. Mm. Mm. cognitive uh, components to it. Mm. Um, you know, what survives death a minute, after, uh, a second after, you, after you're dead, mm. right? But, but you are still alive, mm. but, uh, and you still have consciousness and self-awareness, mm. a reasonableness. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in the 17th century in which reasonableness 
and and soulishness belong together mm. that the place where soulishness is most prevalent is is cognitively mm. Mm. In, and in your mind now that might lead to 17th century uh, faculty psychology and so on and 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 you are on a different page <laughs> squires in in the 21st century i'm sure right. um none of which has any bearing, I don't think, on my relationship to the confession. Right. I don't necessarily accept 17th century faculty psychology. Right. Uh, and, and, and probably I'd want to see that a little more complex than, yeah. than was seen in the 17th century. Right. So we can agree that man is a reasonable soul without going any further and drawing any implications about the rest of nature. And say we are perfectly in line with the confession. Well, I do think that it it reflects seventeenth century emphasis on the mind, yeah. uh, and the dominance of the mind over the heart and affections. Mm. Mm. Now, I, I I do think also that that was challenged a little bit by Edwards. Yeah, you know, and Edwards I think raised the level of the affections to be on a par, I think, with the mind. Yeah, maybe even over it, but mm. but. But um, you asked about animals Animals. and souls. And and animals are soulish in the sense that they have life, which I think is what nefesh means. Thank you, Derek. We will be back in the spring. So we'll be off for... We will spring back. We will spring back. That's right. We'll be off for uh, two months-ish. And then we'll be back, pick back up with chapter five. You've been listening to 1A, a counseling ministry of First Presbyterian Church. We encourage you to listen to all our episodes, which you can find on our webpage at firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can also check us out on all your favorite podcasting applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. If you have comments, questions, or issues you'd like us to wrestle with, contact us. You can reach us at our email address, which is 1A at firstprescolumbia.org. That's 1A at firstprescolumbia.org. Or via our Twitter account, which is at 1A Podcast. That's at 1A Podcast. Or by phone, 803-281-1795. 803-281-1795. For Dr. Thomas, I'm Josh Squires. We look forward to seeing you in the spring. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.